Welcome to the EduBabble Emporium, where we illuminate issues in modern public education with a common sense perspective, while offering suggestions of how to make things better for our students. The host today is Tom O'Brien. He is a 30-year public school teacher and believes in speaking truth during this time of moral crisis is imperative. Welcome and enjoy. Well, hello everyone and welcome to PBIS, the Expose Part 2, where I am going to use data-driven research and anecdotal evidence to shed a spotlight on the track record of PBIS implementation over the years. Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports. That's what PBIS stands for. As school districts spend untold amounts of time, money, and energy, the worst part about the equity-driven programs is that they are based on racist ideals of white supremacy culture, systemic racism, implicit bias, and blah, blah, blah. Bottom line, these programs are built on a victim ideology that pits oppressors versus oppressed or teachers and school staff as the perpetrators and students of color as the victims. What a tragic way to paint our schools and generalize and demonize people for their skin color, all while fostering the mindset of victimhood among so many. This is a toxic environment for learning. Another thing to keep in mind, schools now have hired MTSS coordinators, that's the multi-tiered system of supports related to PBIS, PBIS specialists, SEL coordinators, that's social emotional learning coordinators, and a variety of other jobs in the equity orbit. Teachers are asked to collect data on discipline to document each interaction with students, to record how we speak to students, etc. I mean, countless hours are being spent. In addition, administrators and MTSS PBIS specialists are gathering and analyzing discipline data, disaggregating data, and utilizing data to help prove the narrative that there is inequity in schools, that it is based on systemic racism, and that we need to provide equity-based programs to level the playing field. So you can see that the equity machine is firing on all cylinders, with the fuel being the myth of implicit bias and systemic racism in our schools. And to blow your mind, these negative Nellies pushing these messages are the ones that are supposed to be supporting us, the unions and the school leaders. My question, how is that being an advocate for public education? While behavioral and academic standards are faltering, the equity agenda has become a time trap, a money trap, and it makes our role as teachers more difficult. We are focusing on issues that are out of our control. While the focus of our profession, teaching and providing academic rigor, has taken a back seat. And let me tell you something, way in the back. So the, informa the information I'm going to present today should at least foster a dialogue among educational leaders, parents, and teachers as to how and why schools seem to be struggling more now under equity-driven programs such as PBIS. Sadly, if you take some time to look at crime rates, drug overdose rates, rates of depression and suicide, and a number of other demoralizing data, you will notice that the racism and equity narrative that has been put on steroids 
is wreaking havoc on our schools and sadly on society as a whole. It is divisive. It is dividing us among our many differences rather than uniting us on our commonalities. In my opinion, we need to find things now that unite us and schools need to play a role in this. So let's title this episode, Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports, Exploding the Racist Narrative with Truth Bombs of Love, intended to help bring our schools back to common sense principles and high academic and behavioral standards. All right, let's roll. Oh, and you may hear the term exclusionary discipline quite often today. And that means anytime a teacher or an administrator removes a student from the classroom for disciplinary purposes. It could be something like um, like an in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, something like that. Anytime that student is not in class is removed because of their behavior. So I'm going to be reading some excerpts today um, that were based on research. And so hopefully I can move fairly quickly. I want to start with an excerpt from an article written by writer and attorney, Catherine Kirsten, who studied the equity-driven programs like PBIS in the St. Paul, Minnesota Public Schools. The article is taken from the winter 2017 City Journal, and it was titled, No Thug Left Behind. Here we go. St. Paul's experience makes clear that discipline policies rooted in racial equity ideology lead to disaster. This shouldn't be surprising considering that the ideology's two major premises are seriously flawed. The first premise holds that disparities in school discipline rates are a product of teachers' racial bias. The second maintains that teachers' unjustified and discriminatory targeting of black students gives rise to the school-to-prison pipeline. In 2014, a groundbreaking study in the Journal of Criminal Justice by J.P. Wright discredited both of these claims. The study utilized the largest sample of school-aged children in the nation. Unlike almost all previous studies, it controlled for individual differences in student behavior over time. Using this rigorous methodology, the authors concluded that teacher bias plays no role in the racial equity suspension gap, which they determined is completely accounted for by a measure of the prior problem behavior of the student. Racial differentials in suspension rates, they found, appeared to be a function of differences in problem behaviors that emerge early in life, that remain relatively stable over time, and that materialize in the classroom. Why do black and white students as groups behave differently at school? Black students, on average, are less academically prepared for school entrance and bring with them deficits in many social and emotional skills, the study found over which their parents do not exert control. The authors point out that while a number of earlier studies have suggested pervasive teacher bias as a factor in the racial equity discipline gap, some scholars and activists show clear motivations to present the discipline gap as a civil rights issue with all the corresponding threats of litigation by the federal government. As for the school to prison pipeline, the authors appear to view the concept largely as an effort to link, quote, racial differences in suspensions to racial discrimination, unquote. As we've heard from Barack Obama's Testament of Truth, his 2008 Father's Day speech, and countless times 
from people that like to speak truth, the blame game never leads to beneficial results. And that's right, I said Obama, because he did give a speech on Father's Day in 2008 that was spot on. Let me repeat some of the information from that. So I've now since moved on, and now I'm talking about uh, this Obama speech where he states some data, some statistics. We know the statistics that children who grow up without an involved father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations of our community are weaker because fathers are not being fathers. It's up to us as fathers and parents to instill an ethic of excellence in our children. But as we know, when Obama was elected, the message of personal responsibility and accountability, building a family structure for success, was usurped by his nonstop drumbeat of systemic oppression, racist schools, police targeting people of color, and a laundry list of victimhood catchphrases. Interestingly, none of this ideology is rooted in evidence. In our nation's past, yeah, sure. But today, no way. Calling schools the school-to-prison pipeline is something our teachers' unions, educational leaders, and university professors have been doing for years. I find it to be appalling, unhealthy, and disingenuous. Our country has progressed far past segregation in the Jim Crow South. And, you know, I can prove all of that in another podcast. But folks... This is becoming uh, ridiculous, and it is destructive to our educational system. So, as we move on, I want to take another excerpt from a study done by Will Flanders, Ph.D., and Natalie Goodnow. And this was done in 2018. And it's from a a study titled Collateral Damage, the impact of Department of Education policies on Wisconsin schools. So I will now read from a summary of the study. This paper is among the most rigorous examinations of the impact of discipline policy on educational outcomes. While it appears that PBIS may be meeting its goal of reducing suspensions for African-American students, an uptick in suspensions among non-African-American students should be a matter of concern. If we accept that suspensions are a bad thing and should only be used as a last resort, as the proponents of changes to suspension policy suggest, why are suspensions increasing among certain demographic groups under PBIS training? Even more concerning is the evidence presented here that implementation of positive behavioral supports is leading to worsened academic outcomes for Wisconsin's kids. While some individual schools may have positive results from PBIS, The larger results are troubling. Both statewide and in Milwaukee, we've observed lower proficiency on state exams in English, language arts, after schools have participated in PBIS training. At the state level, we find a similar reduction in mathematics proficiency after PBIS training. This adds to the evidence from surveys of teachers and students, that's uh, taken from Kuo and Moburn, 2016, that these policies are fostering an environment not conducive to learning in many classrooms. 
Rather than trying to force PBIS and its ilk down the throats of schools, districts should be empowered to find practices that work in their classrooms to help improve students' behavior and academic outcomes. While there may be schools in which PBIS is effective, a one-size-fits-all approach is almost never the answer in education. Rather than equity-driven behavior policies, helping to create a safer environment for students, students appear to feel less safe in schools where suspension rates for African-American students are declining. At both the state and federal level, it is important that policymakers consider this information when evaluating policies to address the problem of disparate impact. If differences in suspension rates along racial lines are not the result of overt racism, as the data here suggests they are not, the natural result of reduced suspensions is fostering an environment where other students will have more difficulty learning and perhaps even be afraid to come to school. After a year of learning loss, we cannot afford to lose another year to misguided discipline policies under the false narrative of disparate impacts. Okay, next I'm going to read an excerpt taken directly from the final report of the Federal Commission on School Safety presented to the President of the United States on December 18th, 2018. Sorry, folks, I'm doing a lot of reading today, but this is all really good information. Okay, here we go. In addition to the information provided by experts at commission meetings, field visits, and listening sessions, materials considered by the commission confirm the same troubling pattern noted by critics of the guidance. For example, Gail Heriot, a University of San Diego law professor who also serves on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, captured how some teachers are caught in the unfortunate web of guidance. She noted that school administrators are naturally concerned about scrutiny that may occur if students are disciplined at racially disparate numbers. That concern, she notes, can lead to school administrators closely scrutinizing individual teachers' disciplinary practices for real or imagined evidence of racial bias, while ignoring the underlying causes of student misbehavior. Harriet noted that students are less safe at school when teachers turn a blind eye to misbehavior by disruptive or violent students in the interest of avoiding running afoul of federal investigators. Remember, I'm going to pause for a second because remember, in an earlier podcast, I had mentioned that the Dear Colleague letter that was put out by the Department of Education and the Department of Justice under the leadership of Barack Obama um, threatened um, you know, financial punishment to districts that had disparate or disproportionate data with regard to school discipline. If minority students were punished more often, uh, your district could be punished. And many districts have, like probably thousands have. Okay, so let's get back here. So it says, yeah, so it's that uh, administrators um, don't want to run afoul of federal investigators. So let's continue. Surveys of teachers confirm that the guidance's chilling effect on school discipline, and in particular, on the use of exclusionary discipline, has forced teachers to reduce discipline to non-exclusionary methods, even where such methods are inadequate or inappropriate to student misconduct, with significant consequences for student and teacher safety. Indeed, while research indicates that exclusionary discipline practices are associated with negative academic outcomes and increased behavioral problems, some teachers have reported challenges with relying on non-exclusionary disciplinary practices. In Santa Ana, California, 
65% of teachers stated that non-exclusionary practices were not effective. Similarly, in Hillsborough, Florida, 65% of teachers reported that non-exclusionary practices failed to improve school climate. Now, just let me pause for a second. Non-exclusionary would be if a student is misbehaving and a standard punishment would be to remove that child from the class, a lot of teachers are not doing that. They're finding alternatives to, within the class um, so they can cut down on their disparate impact data, okay? So yes, teachers are very cognizant of, of this. Um, and it's been made very clear. In staff meetings, oftentimes uh, principals will put up the data and show that, oh, let's look at we're punishing uh, minority students at a higher at a higher rate. Um, this is a problem. So teachers have this in the back of their mind all the time. Okay, back to back to the information. In Madison, Wisconsin, only 13% of teachers reported that non-exclusionary practices had a positive effect on student behavior. In Charleston, South Carolina, only 13% of teachers thought the school district's new discipline system works, that the consequences are appropriate, and that it represents an improved approach. That's only 13%, folks. And that's a PBIS type of program. As one teacher observed, policymakers have it made so that we have no authority, only perceived authority. When the individual disciplinary decisions of teachers are frequently questioned, teachers may pull back on removing potentially dangerous students from class. Not surprisingly, the plan also showed that students in classes with disruptive students were less likely to learn. Hello, that's why kids are in school, to learn. Research also supports the Texas findings, clearly indicating that the failure of schools to appropriately discipline disruptive students has consequences for overall student achievement. For instance, research conducted by Scott Carroll of the University of California, Davis, and Mark Hookstra of Texas A&M University found as follows. Disruptive students have statistically significant negative effects on the reading and math scores of students in their class. I can vouch for that one. Hello. A student that disrupts the entire class, it could take one or two kids to make learning very difficult in class, okay? Um, Carol and Hookstra also found that the presence of a disruptive student increases the probability that his classmates will commit a disciplinary infraction. So it's kind of contagious. With the largest behavioral effect observed in boys from low-income families. Thus, disruptive students can create a domino effect, increasing misbehavior and lowering academic achievement across the school. This domino effect can be seen, for example, in Wisconsin, where schools that adopted non-punitive disciplinary measures may have experienced lower reading and math scores than schools that maintained a traditional approach to discipline. In another study, University of Georgia professor Joshua Kinsler used data to simulate the interaction between school discipline policies and student achievement. His simulation found that a policy aimed at decreasing the racial discipline gap were associated with increases in the racial achievement gap because the retention of disruptive students negatively impacted the achievement of African-American students as a whole. Bam! Personal comment here. So these disciplinary methods that are intended to keep kids in class um, and reduce exclu exclusionary discipline are having the reverse effect on minority students in class when it comes to academic achievement. And isn't the point to improve academic achievement? That's, that's powerful. 
For example, using data from the early childhood longitudinal study, kindergarten class, researchers replicated the racial gap in student suspensions, but then analyzed the specific circumstances underlying these suspensions and discovered that, quote, the racial gap in suspensions was completely accounted for by a measure of the prior problem behavior of the student, a finding never before reported in the literature. The report concluded that these findings highlight the importance of early problem behaviors and suggest that the use of suspensions by teachers and administrators may not have been as racially biased as some scholars have argued. Oh, really? This research undermines the core proposition in disparate impact theory that statistical disparities necessarily demonstrate that classroom teachers and administrators are motivated by race when disciplining students. So in other words, personal comment here, taking into account past behaviors of students helps to explain their present behavior. Wow. I mean, you're talking just such a breakthrough idea there. Not. That's common sense, folks. That's the interesting thing about some of these studies is they'll bring up something that's so common sense to the common folk like us. And you're like, uh, duh. And they, they put it into a research paper like, wow, look at what we found out here. Anyway. Okay, let me go back. The guidance relies on a disparate impact legal theory, but that theory lacks foundation in applicable law and may lead schools to adopt racial quotas or proportionality requirements. A school's general duty to treat all students equally is enshrined into law by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VI protects all students who attend institutions receiving federal funding from being treated differently based on their race, color, or national origin. That protection extends to the entire course of the school disciplinary process, from behavior management in the classroom to referrals to an authority outside of the classroom because of misconduct and to resolution of a discipline incident. The guidance relies, however, on principles that are not enshrined in Title VI. Instead, it relies upon an implementing regulation of questionable validity to argue that Title VI prohibits not only intentional discrimination, but also many even-handedly implemented policies that may nevertheless have a racially disparate impact. That reading of Title VI is dubious at best. In 1978, the Supreme Court determined that Congress intended Title VI to prohibit, quote, only those racial classifications that would violate the Equal Protection Clause, unquote, if committed by a government actor. Just prior to this holding, the Supreme Court also held that the Equal Protection Clause requires proof of intentional discrimination and that disproportionate or disparate impact alone does not constitute a violation. Bam! Exclamation point. In other words, disproportionality in data collection does not indicate racism or implicit bias. Yes, I know, folks, to you and I, common sense. But to our leaders, for whatever reason, to politicians, for whatever reason, to university talking heads, for whatever reason, they just, they wouldn't want to hear that. Now, finally, I would like to read from a study 
that was conducted by the United States Department of Education. Yeah, that's right. You heard me right. The United States Department of Education. The study was titled Study of Training in Multi-Tiered Systems of Support for Behavior, Impacts on Elementary School Students' Outcomes. And let me read from that. That's MTSS. It's very closely related to the PBIS. It's, they're, like, uh, they're like first cousins. They're interconnected within the schools. Multi-tiered systems have limited potential for improving student behavior. Schools and providers may want to consider ways to assess behavior issues and students' needs before significant investments in adopting MTSS strategies. The program's primary focus on addressing students' disruptive behavior in the classroom and offering supplemental support when needed may not be sufficient to improve academic achievement, either for students with behavior issues or for that of their peers. Here's the abstract from the study. The program had no effect on the disruptive behaviors of students overall or on any other student behaviors. At the end of two program years, students' disruptive behavior, for example, being aggressive, was similar in schools participating in the program and those that were not. Consistent with this lack of improvement in disruptive behavior, the program also did not improve other aspects of student behavior that the study explored, including pro-social behavior, for example, displaying positive behavior with peers, attention to schoolwork, emotional dysregulation, for example, becoming easily upset, and internalizing behavior, for example, acting withdrawn and sad. All aspects of student behavior were measured by teachers' ratings on a commonly used zero to five point scale with higher values reflecting more frequent displays of the behavior. Importantly, despite participating schools' interest in implementing, there were no noted impacts with schools in implementing the MTSS strategies. There were no effects on math test scores during the two program years. Even though the third year allowed staff and their students to gain more experience with the MTSS approach, there was no effect on reading or math test scores in the year after the study's training and support had ended. In addition to looking at the impacts on this primary subgroup of initially struggling students, the study explored the program's effects on student behavior for subgroups of students defined by gender, grade span, individualized education program status, and English language learner, and found few significant impacts. So here's me, okay, my thoughts. So as you can see, folks, all of the time, money, and manpower being poured into these equity-driven behavioral programs are having little to no positive impact with behaviors or in the academic realm. Even the United States Department of Education study proved that the skepticism over the MTSS-type programming is fully justified. So as teachers, parents, and involved citizens, it is time for all of us to become more informed discover our voice, and support our schools by supporting our students and staying involved. We need to bring common sense back to our schools. We need to dispense of the toxic and divisive racist ideologies like the PBIS and MTSS and SEL that are being promoted by leftist politicians and unions and put high academic rigor and respectful behaviors back at the top of the heap. It's very simple, folks. What we used to do worked years ago, holding kids to high standards and using very simple disciplinary methods where if a student violated one of the rules in the student handbook, it was immediately dealt with with a fair consequence and the student learned their lesson. Not taking into consideration 
the race of that student, but instead looking at students as individuals and looking at their behaviors as individual behaviors and trying to help that individual. When we start to classify and generalize based on race, that is the definition of racism. We need to get rid of it. It's terrible. So ladies and gentlemen, just thank you very much for being here. Um, it was great to have you back to the Edge of Babel Emporium, where I will continue to do my research in my little neck of the woods and try to give you information that is helpful to allowing you to help make our schools better in whatever way you choose. Thanks, and have a great night.